0: going to preach this? Maybe you're wondering that, right? Well, you'll see. A few years ago, my wife for Christmas gave me a, a little box that was wrapped, and as I opened it, I saw it was one of those DNA tests. I, I had talked for, for a few years before that and, and kind of gave uh, not so subtle hints that this is something I'd like to do. I'd like to see uh, for certain where I come from. And so I follow the instructions. I I open the box and there's a little tube in there and you get enough spit and you, not grossing out, you spit in a tube. I feel bad for the person who has to handle that, but you spit in a tube, you seal it, you package it up, and you mail it away, and a few weeks later you get your results. Nothing that I got was surprising. Two-thirds or Yeah, two-thirds northwestern European. That means French, German, British, Irish, and Scandinavian. I already knew that. And the report also said that I'm a quarter Hungarian, which I knew that for certain. My grandfather's family, his parents, came uh, to the United States directly from Hungary right before World War I. The report even tells me the region of Hungary that my ancestors come from. The rest of my results just shows I'm broadly European, pretty plain. Well, a few months ago, uh, my wife and I decided to purchase the same test for our two sons. And you may say, wait, that's weird. Why would you do that for your kids? Well, both of my boys are adopted. They're half brothers. So we wanted to know their history and their heritage. We, we wanted to see who they are, where they come from. And as the results came in, we were excited, intrigued, and a bit Shocked. The results show that my sons are nearly half-Indigenous Americans, meaning that their history goes back to Mexico before the Spanish, Europeans, and Portuguese hit the Yucatan Peninsula. My oldest is nearly half-Spanish, and my younger son is a third Spanish. Knowing what we knew, that wasn't a stunning fact. If you know anything about Mexico, that's pretty normal. But what stunned me more than anything else that my second son is 10% African. I had no idea. He shares DNA with people from Ghana, Liberia, Sierra Leone, Nigeria, Angola, Congo, and Sudan. The DNA test even shows a 100-year window uh, where his ancestors or when they were likely born. So you can kind of piece together Where they were, where they traveled, and looking at a map of Ghana, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Angola, matching it up with the dates of when his ancestors were born. It's likely that my second son has an ancestor that was an African involved in the Atlantic slave trade. See, my DNA showed everything that I expected. Very boring, very plain. Everything that I found matched what I already knew about myself through family trees and through stories that were passed down. But my son's story is very different. In addition to what I already shared, his DNA shows that he has Egyptian, Turkish, Indian, Sri Lankan, Manchurian, and Ashkenazi Jewish blood. My ancestors stayed put where his spread all over. See, these ancestry and health services give more than just facts. They tell stories. My son's ancestry report, you can see the different aspects of the people that are described. You can see the story and the history of what makes him, him. But what if I handed you a family tree with names that you didn't know? With towns that you've never heard of? With, with historical backgrounds that were completely foreign to you. And I said, Read. Would you be interested? Probably not. You had no connection with the people. They're just names written on a page. But what if I said, These are your ancestors? These are your people. Here is their story, but here is your story. Would you feel different about that? Of course you would. Uh, You never knew these people existed. You would never meet them because they died long ago, but yet they are part of you. They're your family. See, when I looked at my son's family story, I see people who were conquered and subjugated by invaders. I see people who were captured, crammed on ships, and taken 5,000 miles away and enslaved for centuries. I see people who were the victims of colonialism. The names of people on this story, this list, they have stories to tell. They're not just names. They're not just a list. To see them as names just denies their humanity. They have worth and dignity and value. They're not just letters on a page or a screen. It's not my story, but because it's my son's, I feel like it is my story. So how can I be moved by names of people that I don't know and have never met? How can we read something in scripture and see these crazy names? People that that lived thousands and thousands of years ago, and this story that was written is not the most enjoyable story to read. How in the world can we get anything out of this? Their names tell a story. They have worth. And I figured this out because I've seen the value in these names. I read these names with an interest and a passion that I've never had before. I see people groups and I beam with pride with my son and when I see the story of God's story in humanity and I see these people are part of it. It's not just a list. It's not just names. This is God working through sinful people. And we see these names listed. These are people who have families and feelings and desires and passions and strengths and weaknesses and sins and flaws and all of those things that you and I share, these people shared too. See, this passage that we just read may seem like names. They spoke a different language. They they enjoyed different pleasures. They saw the world with very different eyes. They, They interpreted things very differently than we do. But God saw it fit to include passages like this. And there are others. He saw it fit to include this in his word. Maybe you're like me. When I've read through Genesis before, I ran through this as fast as I could. This was... Almost a punishment, it seemed. No one, no one sits and reads this as their devotional, right? This is not a, a, any story. There's no dialogue happening. There's, there's nothing exciting happening. It's just names, and, and and this person had this person and married this person. See, I never denied that it was inspired. It clearly is. And I never denied that it was God's word. I never understood its significance. So here's the big question, and you're all asking this right now. Why is this in Scripture? Why is this in the Bible? Why are there lengthy lists and genealogies and and, and names that have, uh, outside of Scripture, have no historical significance? There there are names in here that you could research and research, and you'll find absolutely nothing about those people. So why is it in Scripture? Why, Why is the entire book of Numbers in Scripture? They're so dry and boring sometimes. In this passage, there's, there's nothing happening. So why is it here? Well, when we come to any part of the Bible, we need to ask one main question. What is God doing here? This is for all the Bible. What is God doing in this particular passage of Scripture? You can answer that. You can really understand the rest of Scripture. You can see God's story and God's plan. And it will make sense of passages that are difficult or dry or boring or strange. See, as believers, we believe that every passage of Scripture, every part of God's Word is beneficial to us. Genesis 36 is from God just as much as those red letters in the Gospels that we love so much. So it's on us to labor and find out what God wants us to know about Him through His Word. And that's my goal today. Don't worry. I'm not going to go verse by verse, I'm not going to go name by name, I have no charts, I, I have no historical background on each person here, but I want to show you why this matters and why Genesis 36 is important for you and for me. Well, this chapter, it focuses on Esau, the story of Esau, his descendants, the Edomites, They're important actors in the history of Israel. Isaac and Rebekah had two twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the heir to the promise that God made to Abraham and Isaac. Jacob stole Esau's birthright and blessing. Jacob's story is, is in the previous chapters of Genesis, and I encourage you to read that. But in Genesis 33, years after Jacob had fled Esau, Jacob and Esau meet again. And it could have been disaster for Jacob. Jacob could have been killed. And Esau and his men come up to Jacob and his family. And Jacob's ready to die. But instead, Esau doesn't kill him. He welcomes his brother and offers to help him. But even through that, that doesn't change the fact that the blessings still belonged to Jacob. Now it's not hard to to imagine the the Edomites and what they're thinking at this point. They they carried with them a burden. The the people of Esau are, are proud of their heritage and they believe that they should be the recipients of the blessing from Isaac. After all, it belonged to Esau before. And then it was stolen. Jacob's grandfather Abraham abused Hagar, which led her to have a son named Ishmael. Now Pulling this in contemporary terms, today, if you were to talk to a Muslim, he would say or she would say that the blessing, the covenant that God made was actually not with Isaac, it was with Ishmael. And this conflict has gone on for generations after generation. So it's probable the Edomites that were not turned into Muslims, but the Edomites who weren't far removed from Esau, that they would have felt similar. The blessing should belong to us. Don't we see that's most of the world's conflict? comes from one group of people saying, we deserve this, that what you have, and we're going to fight you for it. Land, power, oil. You have what we think we deserve. We're coming to get it. The Edomites certainly felt this way. The covenant with God should be with us not the Israelites. See, this history runs deep, and it matters because the rest of the the Old Testament uh, uh, builds on this conflict. The the interaction between the Israelites and the Edomites are rich. In Deuteronomy 2 and Deuteronomy 23, concessions were made for the Edomites who lived among the Israelites. So they, they went their separate ways, but there were always people who intermingled. They weren't completely cut off from one another. If you go to Israel, you may see something similar to this where you'll see Jewish people and Muslims in the same area. And they live somewhat peaceably with one another, but there's always a tension. See, the Israelites and the Edomites were seen as brothers, just like Jacob and Esau. And even though the Edomites weren't part of the covenant, they were still considered some family. In Genesis 33, the interaction where Jacob comes out to meet Esau, it would give people some hope. Hey, if Jacob and Esau can connect and, and, and to show some, some family history, well, why can't we? So you say, what is God doing in this? Think about who wrote this? Moses, the author of Genesis, knows what comes later. You can't write something that hasn't happened already. So Moses, who's looking back at history, he sees where God is moving after this moment. So he's writing as a historian. And so Moses is preparing the reader for everything that comes after. He didn't know this, but do you know Herod comes from the line of Esau? Herod tried to kill Jesus and the leaders of the church. Moses wouldn't have known that, but if we believe in the inspiration of Scripture, we know that God knew that before. Edom was not a group of good people either. They rejoiced at the destruction of Jerusalem, and God condemns them for it. See, throughout the Old Testament, Edom is a symbol of one who is outside of the covenant of God. In other words, Edom represents everyone who is depraved and given into their own lust and their desires. The prophet Malachi wrote this. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Esau, Jacob, but Esau I have hated. In Romans 9, Paul quotes this verse to describe the elect in comparison to the non-elect. Now, was this a hate like we have? Certainly not. Genesis 33 and Genesis 36 show that some of Esau's descendants were actually blessed by God. See, God rejected Esau and Edom, choosing the Israelites, another group of people, to be his people. God chose Jacob and not Esau to be the one to further the cause that would lead to Christ. God chose Abraham out of a population of the entire planet. God could have easily said, Abraham I loved, everyone else I hated. And it would have been perfectly true and acceptable. See, Romans 9, building on what we see here in Genesis 36 and in Malachi and in Obadiah and all of the other statements about Edom, Esau... Romans 9 shows that God chose Jacob to continue his work like God chooses the church to continue his today. See, Esau, all of what we see in Genesis 36, Esau is a symbol of those who oppose the work of God. Entire books of prophecy in the Old Testament are written specifically to condemn Edom. What will happen to Edom because of their wickedness? The question is, does Esau have a choice? Well, because we say that, Esau, why don't you just turn around and, and, and become godly? Why don't you just follow God's standards? Well, he doesn't have one regarding the covenant, but he does have a choice whether or not he'll obey. You say, well, wait, wait, how is that fair? See, Esau does exactly what anyone will do when they're not under the power of God. He chooses to go his own way. Esau and all of the Edomites coming after him chose to live opposite the standard of God. This shows that God is sovereign, but Esau acts freely. How that works, I have no idea, but this is what we're seeing here. Remember, Esau is a symbol. Edom is a symbol of all of the people who are standing outside of the covenant that God has made. So Jacob and Esau go their own ways. Verse six says that Esau separates from his brother similar to other moves that we've seen when Jacob left Laban Isaac leaving Abimelech and Lot leaving Abraham the scripture says that the land wasn't big enough to support all of the families and animals then in verses 9 through 30 we see a fulfillment of promises what we read in this part of the passage is God's promise of fulfillment to Esau see wait what did God gave Esau. Esau's out of the covenant. What does God have to do with someone who's outside of the covenant? See, God had already given Esau life and influence and power and authority. He's leading armies. But Esau wanted more. He wanted earthly blessings, and that's exactly what he was given. I'm often reminded of a quote by C.S. Lewis where he says, There are two kinds of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, all right, then have it your way. That's scary to me. You want fame? You want power? You want authority? You want land? You want money? You want all of those things for God to say, have it your way. Esau wanted things to be done his way. His descendants, the Edomites, wanted the same thing, and they suffered for it. You may wonder, well, how did you find that in this text? How did you find that in this passage? We'll turn back to Genesis 28. Isaac tells Jacob this, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Look down to verses 8 and 9. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, beside the wives he had, Mahalath the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Esau was already married to Canaanite women, so when he sees what Isaac says to Jacob, don't go marry the Canaanite women, he goes to Ishmael, who was not a Canaanite, hoping that it would please his father. But as we've seen and continue to see, the promises of God were not given to Ishmael. See, He didn't go to his father and say, help me to find a wife. He goes to the one who's outside of the covenant. They were given to Abraham, the covenant was, and it was passed down to Isaac, not to Ishmael. And you'll see this over and over throughout the Bible. Edom stands in stark contrast to the works and the people of God. applying it today, Edom represents the world. Edom is gone. Their kings are gone. Their, Their rulers are gone. Their name is recorded in Scripture and in history, but they're gone. What we're seeing in here for us today is that Edom represents everything that stands in opposition to God. They are outside of God's will and God's standard. They want to do what's right in their own eyes. They are focused on living their own way. They ignore or even hate what God has said. And so this is why God gives us a challenge. In verses 31 through 39, we see both a challenge and a warning. First, the challenge. Jacob's faith is tested. say, well, where would you see that? By any account from human perspective, you see all of these kings listed, you see all of these families, you see all of these names, and we know from history that Edom prospered. They had an army that was strong. They had a growing economy. This would be the equivalent of a country that has stable leadership and a booming economy. They they were the envy of everyone around them. This is Edom. They had kings. When Israel had none. See, when we face situations like this, we're tempted to get jealous and get angry. We can become jealous of the fact that someone else has something that we think we deserve. If we're doing what's right, we should be rewarded. After all, isn't that the way that things work? That we do something good, we get rewarded in the end. We can also become angry at the other person or even angry with God. Think about the last time that you were treated unfairly or someone mistreated you or someone hurt you or or someone took something that belonged to you and there was nothing you could do about it. This is likely what Israel was thinking. We are part of the covenant. God. You promised that that Abraham would father many nations. We're struggling, wandering around in the desert, and we're looking over at those evil, wicked people who were partying and having a great time. How is this fair? In truth, much of Israel's history could have provoked them to jealousy and anger. Wandering in the desert... Lord, you rescued us from the clutches of Egypt, and now we're walking around in the desert for year after year after year. You gave us the promised land, but you're not bringing us to it. How is that fair? See, Jacob is facing a test of whether he will continue to trust in God or not. He's being forced to choose, and the pressure is growing. Edom is thriving, and Israel is wandering. The second thing that we see here, so we've seen a challenge, and now here comes the warning. This is specifically a warning against giving in to the surrounding culture. Edom had something Israel didn't. They had kings. Long list of them. Israel had none. It would have been understandable for Israel to start the the workings to figure out, we've got to have a king. We cannot survive without a leader. And you can imagine the Israelites thinking, well, wouldn't it be wonderful to have one? Wouldn't it be nice? That's what happens when a church looks for a new pastor. Um, I've been part of these, and I've witnessed this. The interview process is kind of a, a courting or a dating process. And, and, and honestly, to hire a pastor um, is really to get married after a few dates. That's really what, the in essence, it is. And, and so I've seen this happen, and I've been part of this, where I will interview at a church... And we'll go through a few steps, and, 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 and at the time, or, and, and I've seen other my friends go through this too, there comes a point where you have to make a decision. The church and the prospective pastor. And a church sometimes will get to a point where they've told everybody else no, and they have their focus on one guy, but something happens where that one guy says, no, I'm not, this is not for me. The church is devastated. The search committee is devastated. They all, they all want to just put their heads in the ground and leave. I mean, they, th- this is devastating for all of the months of work and labor that they did, and they've already told everybody else no. They can't go back to number two because he knows he wasn't the main guy. And I've seen churches panic. Well, we've got to have somebody. We've been a year or a year and a half or two years without a pastor. We've got to have someone here to lead us. We've got, we, we, we have to. And I've seen churches do this, and they install someone who's just not a good fit. Where 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 sometimes having what you want is not nearly as good as not having anything at all. Let me rephrase that. Not having something is often better than having what you want. And Israel is wanting a king, but if you look at the study of the kings in Edom, the kings and the the nations and the people surrounding them, you'll see something that they most of them have in common. They're wicked. They're evil. They did bad things. They fought and attacked the people of God. They were not good kings. They were tyrants. They were dictators. They were all of those things that we don't want in a leader. And, and if you study the kings of Israel, even, you know that even when they got the kings, all sorts of bad stuff started to happen, right? Saul. Not a good guy. David had his flaws. Solomon after him. They they all had flaws. So when they get what they wanted and they finally realize, this isn't as good as I thought it was going to be. But Israel was probably consumed with what they saw Edom having that they didn't. The surrounding culture around Israel was strong. Maybe they, they thought we could have the success of Edom if we had someone to lead. See, we're being warned of the danger of giving in to cultural pressure here. Either we serve God or we serve something else. Israel saw the prosperity of those around them, and I'm sure that the temptation was strong to give in. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 6. He says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. And where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in in you is darkness. How great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For he will either hate one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I don't intend to change the meaning of what God said or Jesus said. But what I'm going to say fits with everything else we've seen in Scripture. You cannot serve God and fill in the blank with whatever you want. You, you cannot have two lords. You cannot have two kings. You cannot have two masters. You cannot have two rulers in your life. No, I... I Israel, you cannot serve God and follow your desires to be like Edom. Church, you cannot serve God and hope to gain favor and a following from those outside of the faith. You cannot serve God and your own flesh. You cannot serve God and do what you think is right in your life. Jesus says in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I wonder if Israel would have heard that. If some of the stuff that happens after Genesis 36 would have changed. It's something that we need to hear today. We cannot desire cultural acceptance. We, we cannot look at what other people have outside of the faith and say, ah, I really need this. We cannot do what the world wants and please God at the same time. Now, it's safe to say that most of you have probably never studied this passage. I, I breeze through this when I've read through it. I've never looked at these names and, and analyzed these names before, and we can do that. But I think they'd be missing the bigger picture of what this passage is saying. I think it would miss the importance of the future uh, of the conflict between Israel and Edom. I think it would miss the point that the hearts of those in Israel who wanted something more reside in us as well. To be fair, this isn't the most exciting passage of Scripture It's not easy to study. The names are hard to pronounce. There's no dialogue. But every word of scripture is powerful and it has purpose and our responsibility is to discern what that is. So I want to leave you, as we've worked through some of this and the history and stuff that we'll see unfold as we continue to study through the Old Testament, I want to leave you with two thoughts based on this chapter. First, based on what we've seen through Edom, God allows those outside of his family to receive blessings. God gives what's called common grace to everyone. The lost person living next door to you gets the same rain in his garden that you get in yours. This is a grace that God gives to everyone. We breathe the same air. We have the same enjoyments. We we enjoy a a, a plate of food that that tastes delicious. And and the sinner and the saint both have that in common. Second, second, God is faithful and keeps his promises to his people. Without this, we have nothing. Our faith that God will do what he says is based on what we read in the Bible and what we see in our lives. We've experienced this, that God is faithful. One of the difficult things about teaching through passages like this is that we isolate a portion of scripture. Far better than just taking one word or two words. We look at an entire passage but to really get the gist of this, to get the impact of this, you've got to know the history of the Old Testament. And when you start seeing books written and these prophecies made against Edom, and you see that God is faithful over and over and over again, you start to see that God keeps his word. And if God can keep his word, if God can know the names of even these evil people, you better believe he knows the names of his children. This story, these names, they're just names. But they're not just names. This is evidence taken in part of the whole scripture. This is evidence of God's faithfulness to his people. Would you pray with me?